Today's episode is part one of our two-part sex ed series on dyspareunia, vaginismus and vulvodynia. I'll be your host, Jade Chan, a third-year medical student at the Melbourne Medical School. Today we're joined by Dr. Anita Elias, a medical practitioner and psychotherapist. She is head of the Sexual Medicine and Therapy Clinic at Monash Health, works in the psychosexual service at the Royal Women's Hospital, and is in private practice at the Malvern Psychotherapy Centre. As a warning to listeners, we'll be briefly discussing intimate partner violence in this episode. Anita, could you please tell us a bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, thanks, Jade. And to start with, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be able to talk about this topic because it's something that I think doesn't get talked about very much as a very important topic. So to tell you a little bit about myself and how I came to be doing this work, um, I started off my medical um, uh career as a GP. I worked as a GP for about 10 years and primarily in student health services. So, you know, talking to people about their problems was something that is, you know, a normal part of general practice. And that's the bit that I enjoyed the most. So I trained in various forms of psychotherapy, both for individuals, for couples and family therapy. Actually, that combination of the medical experience and um, the psychological training and experience that got me a job at the women's hospital actually 24 years ago now uh, in the sexual counseling clinic so I started working there and seeing uh, women with sexual difficulties and then for about 20 years I've been working at Monash and uh, as you said I'm head of the sexual medicine therapy clinic there so I often, I often actually give that background to my, the patients that I'm seeing because it's important right from the get-go to, to let people know that if they have a sexual issue or a sexual difficulty, it's so important to look at the whole picture, both mm-hmm. the physical stuff that's going on and the psychological, emotional and potentially the relationship stuff as well. So, yeah, so that's what I do. I, I, I kind of look at the whole picture. And uh, with sexual difficulties, you know, really anything and everything can have an impact. So, um, you know, I'm looking at, I sort of often say to people, I see my job as kind of Sherlock Holmes looking for clues as to what's contributing to their problem. And it can be from any aspect of their life. Okay. Well, thank you. That's great. Um, So let's get started. Um, What are your tips for asking patients about sex? Okay, so it's interesting. My first thought about this is, you know, that question doesn't get asked for other issues, does it? We don't say, what are your tips in asking people about bowel problems Mm. or, you know, even other personal things like that. So um, it's, it's sad that we actually have to think about asking about sex in a different way. But of course, for many people, it is a taboo subject and it's a taboo subject both for health practitioners uh, as well as our patients. We know from research that many, many patients who have sexual problems actually don't bring it up. And uh, unfortunately, also many medical practitioners don't bring it up when they really need to. So I think it is behoven upon us as as health health professionals to be the one to bring it up and to ask the question. So how you ask really depends on the context. And if you're seeing someone for the first time, say you're a GP and you're meeting someone for the first time or in other context, 
it might just be a matter of systems review. So just as we want to know about do they have any you know, heart conditions or any respiratory problems, or et cetera, et cetera, you know, I think in a very matter-of-fact way, you can just ask a very simple open-ended question such as, you know, are you sexually active? And if so, do you have any worries or concerns or difficulties in sex? Uh, so I think something really sort of making it very straightforward, normal, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, when someone is presenting in a particular context, so certainly if there's any gynae issues, if the you know, women's presenting with a gynae issue or for family planning, contraception or worrying about STIs, etc., it's a it's a very relevant and important thing to ask about, you know, to include questions about, you know, apart from this issue, are you having any sexual issues? But really in any field of medicine, um, if any illness that a person might have can impact them sexually. So sometimes even, you know, specialists who are seeing people for other reasons need to ask, okay, so many people, something like many people with this condition um, can have an impact on their sex lives. Is it an issue for you? Have you had any worries about sexuality that you'd like to talk about? You know, and then there's the context of prescribing medication. Um, and many, unfortunately, many medications can have an impact on, on sexuality. So that's really informed consent you know so prescribing medication that has an impact on sexuality it's so important to say mm. to let them know to say that this medication can have an impact and to bring up the topic in this way or you know if there's surgery that can have an impact so it's uh, often bringing up the topic of sex is part of or should be part of informed consent sometimes that's not the case so, you know, that's about bringing it up. And um, once we bring it up, it's really important to, to normalise it and validate it, legitimise it as a, as a normal thing that is important to talk about. Having said that, I think it's, you know, the doctor's responsibility to bring it up, but also let patients know that, you know, you're free to talk about this or not talk about yeah. it. You know, if you feel like you want to, um, that's great and I'm happy to help you how I can. But if it's not something you want to talk about at the moment, that's absolutely fine too. So just one other point about that. I guess if we're um, asking someone, are there any sexual problems you'd like to talk about and they say no, that either means that they haven't actually got a sexual problem, which is great, or it means that they might have one but don't feel comfortable at the time to talk about it. However, the fact that you've brought it up means they know that in the future, you know, they at least that makes them know that you're okay to talk about it. So they might not want to at the time, but they know that you're open to the idea. So in the future, when the need arises, they know they can bring it up with you and feel comfortable doing it. Okay. Yeah. And one other yep. thing, um, 
in terms of the tip about talking to people about sex, I think we can't ignore the idea about our own comfort with talking about sex. Mm. And as I said at the start, you know, many of us have been brought up with the idea that, you know, sex itself or talking about sex is taboo and not okay. So I think as health professionals, we need to kind of look at that a little bit and think about what we might need to do to be more comfortable ourselves in talking about sex. Before we start talking about dyspareunia, uh, I guess I just wanted to say that um, what the patient population will be talking about are people with vaginas. Mm -hmm. And some of them um, identify as female women and use the pronouns she, her. Uh, and there are others who don't um, identify as, as, as female. So I guess it's important to say that when I'm talking about these conditions, I'm thinking about all people with vaginas. Um, for ease, I might just use the pronouns that, you know, I might use she and her because it's sort of simple <laughs> and and easier. But as long as everybody knows that I know that not everybody identifies as she and her and we're talking about people with vaginas and vulvas. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, th I think that's important to acknowledge as well. So, Anita, what are the most common causes of dyspareunia that you see in your practice and what are the main differentials for this presentation? Yeah, okay. So I'll answer first what are the most common causes, but not uh, they're not necessarily the most common that I see in my practice because my practice is a sort of I see people with referrals mm, who've had problems for a long time. Yep. But if we're thinking about first presentations to GPs, etc., um, and overall, I guess the most common cause of painful sex is vaginal dryness. Uh, and depending on the age group of the person, um, that can be for different reasons. So one of the most common causes, especially in a younger population, is lack of arousal. I think that's still the first thing that we should think about is, are they having painful sex because they're not turned on enough? In a postmenopausal um, patient population, then vaginal dryness due to lower or lack of estrogen um, is the most common cause or is a common cause in that population. Although, of course, they may also have lack of arousal um, contributing. Then very commonly in particularly general practice population, infections, particularly things like thrush, either acute but especially recurrent or chronic thrush, and any other infection as well can lead to pain. We've got to think about dermatological conditions um, such as, uh, well, basically any dermatological condition that can affect any part of the body can also affect the vulva. Um, so eczema, dermatitis, all of those common things. But there are specific vulval conditions that, um, such as lichen sclerosis and planus. So we've got to make sure that we look for any other, any causes of uh, infection. Uh, there can be trauma, there can be, you know, malignancies, there can be other things that are much less common. Very 
very much less common are structural abnormalities. We've got to think of it, but they're, they're pretty rare. So in my practice, because those things have often been dealt in general practice and been dealt with by the time they get to see me, although I still see a lot of people who either have had in the past or do still have chronic thrush, chronic candidiasis. Um, but the most common thing I see is women with vaginismus um, and vulvodynia because both those conditions lead to long-term chronic dyspareunia. Okay. Um, so if a patient comes to you presenting with, they say they're getting pain when they have sex, what information do you need to gather yeah. as part of your history? Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of stuff that I want to know. First of all, I want to know where is the pain? Is the pain at the entrance, um, just to touch at the, at the vulva itself or at the introitus, or is it deeper in somewhat deeper in or is it actually like deep dyspareunia so we've sort of got to differentiate is it superficial or deep dyspareunia because that can give us a lot of clues oh the other thing i didn't mention in the causes that i should come to i was really thinking about more superficial dyspareunia of course we've got to think in terms of causes of deep dyspareunia is any pelvic problem so any so endometriosis for instance um, any other sort of uterine conditions, bladder problems, or even bowel conditions. So I forgot to mention those causes of deep dyspareunia. So in taking our history, we want to know, is it superficial or deep? What's the nature of the kind of pain? That can be really helpful. So is it a burning, a stinging, a pressure, a tightness, for instance? And how much pain is there? Um, is there just a little bit or extreme pain? And we want to know when the pain started. That's super important. I'm very interested in has it been there the whole time they've been being sexual or has it come on at some point later on? So is it a primary or is it a secondary problem? And is the pain with just with touch is it with attempted um, penetration? Uh, is it even at other times of non-sexual touch, non-genital touch? Do they just have pain all the time? Because some people have sort of chronic pelvic pain that can also be associated with dyspareunia. We want to know, is it there just sometimes or always? Um, does it vary? Is penetration or receptive sex possible um, uh, and um, yeah in terms of when the problem started there's a lot of stuff I want to know I really want to know about what was going on at the time so what was happening in their lives um, and I go into that um, really in a lot of detail and not just about what was happening sexually but what was happening in any aspect of their lives were they having any other stresses were they having any other worries um, all of that sort of thing I want to know um, what are the consequences of their pain how has it impacted their life and their quality of life I want to know have they sought help before and who with and what happened when they sought help and was it helpful and what kind of practitioners they got help with. 
And one of the very important things that I want to know is if they've been trying to have intercourse or penetrative sex and it's been painful, is that something that they've continued to do? Because that's very common. Um, people are continuing to try and, you know, continue to, to have penetrative or receptive sex even when it's painful. And that can lead to it getting more and more and more painful. It can exacerbate the problem, exacerbate the pain. So that's a question that sometimes doesn't get asked, but it's one of the most important questions to me. So okay. the other things that um, we need to know about is do they have any other associated symptoms that could give us clues as to uh, why they've got painful sex? And um, things like do they have any vaginal discharge? Do they have any itchiness? Uh, any bladder symptoms or bowel symptoms? How are things, you know, how are their periods? Do they have dysmenorrhea or menorrhagia? Do they have pelvic pain or pain anywhere else? So those other symptoms are important to ask as well. But I know most people don't, you know, I guess GPs kind of know a lot about patients, you know, all that general information about patients. And often it's about joining the dots and um, sort of working out which aspects are having an impact on their sex life. Okay. And out of curiosity, how often, how long do you think patients typically wait before they kind of bring up this, this question with their GP and before they get referred to you? Too long mm. is the short answer. Um, and in my practice, I see people who've really waited you know, sometimes they've seen someone and, and I find that if they've got something to show for it, so if they've got some vaginal discharge or, you know, any of those other um, symptoms that, um, that might be associated with the pain, that might be associated with the other causes or itchiness or other skin things, they might go sooner to their GP because they might sort of suspect there's something wrong going on. But when they don't have that and it just hurts anyway, then they often put it off for a long time. And I've seen people who've waited six months, 12 months, five years, or even 20 years um, to seek help. And then one of the other questions that I always like to ask is, why are they presenting now? When they've been waiting a long time, why are they presenting now? Yeah, because there could be a lot of different reasons for that. Okay. And when we're asking a patient for their history, are there any um, red flag symptoms or signs that we should be looking out for? Well, one of the red flags, as I sort of mentioned before, is if they're continuing to do stuff that hurts, mm. even though that hurts. So even if that's just, you know, genital touch, but certainly if they're trying to have any penetrative sex that hurts, um, then we want to know why they're continuing to do it and address that straight away so that they stop doing anything that hurts while we do the assessment and, and the management. Um, and uh, in terms of what should we be looking out for, I think it's important to mention that anyone with dyspareunia should be examined. So, um, you know, examination is really important to, to make an accurate diagnosis. Um, the other red flag is in terms of relationship, and we want to be really listening out for any worries about what's going on in the relationship. And as we know, unfortunately, too often 
you know, relationship, um, domestic abuse and violence is, is very common. And naturally, if a person is having painful sex, they are unlikely to want to be having sex. You know, it's going to impact their libido and their desire for sex. So they might be, you know, saying no. And if there's a risk of, you know, any relationship issues, um, conflict and especially abuse, um, then we've got to listen out for that and ask, ask about it specifically if we're at all worried. That's it for part one of this two-part series on dyspareunia. Next time you'll hear Dr. Anita cover vaginismus and vulvodynia in detail. See you next time. Thank you.